Hi, I'm Stacey Schumacher-Rowan, Editor-in-Chief of Hospitality Design Magazine with HD's What I've Learned podcast. Today, I sat down with Sheldon Scott, an artist of many disciplines based in Washington, D.C., who is bringing attention to the crucial issues of racial inequality and systemic racism through his work. In fact, he was among the inaugural finalists in performance art for the Smithsonian's 2019 Outwin Bouchever Portrait Competition, for which he kneeled on a burlap sack and hulled rice for six straight days as a tribute to his ancestors. Scott started his career in psychology, finding the Boys and Girls Club of America before diving into the art world. Today, he's also the director of culture at Eaton, D.C., entering the hospitality fray with a brand committed to activism and inclusivity. In our fascinating interview, Scott clued me in on what makes his artistic and entrepreneurial mind tick. Hi, I'm here with Sheldon Scott. Sheldon, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, let's start at the beginning. Where did you, where were you born and where did you grow up? I was born in Pauley's Island, South Carolina, which is a part of the Gullah Geechee region series of various islands where um, my ancestors were brought over from Western Africa and enslaved and worked those plantations for hundreds of years and spent um, my life there until about 17, 18 when I went to college. So growing up, was there ever an interest in design or art or hospitality? Um, any kind of early memory, memories of them all, of any of that? Well, it's funny. It wasn't until I started working at Eaton, um, I guess, uh, a little over three years ago, where I realized that hospitality had always been a part of like my upbringing. We were maybe 20 miles south of Myrtle Beach in the Grand Strand. And, you know, that's a huge tourist destination. And uh, a lot of my family, including myself, actually worked in the hotels. But, you know, I, I didn't think of it as hospitality. Um, you know, just sort of it as a job for a teenager. So, um, you know, I also had been working in the restaurants for years as well, too, up and down in that region. Um, in terms of art, not really not formally like the idea or concept of like being an artist and living as an artist um wasn't one that I was exposed to as a child um and I would say that um I was um an adult before I ever went to an art museum I was an adult living in Washington DC actually for a couple of years before I actually got exposed to um art in that context um, but, you know, a lot of those things, like, you know, certainly take different forms, like, you know, griot and storytelling culture is really big, um, but we just didn't think of it in the context of art, like how I practice it now. Yeah. And were your parents, what did your parents do? Did they have any influence on you? Um, not, not in those respects. Like, you know, my father was a very talented singer, um, his claim to fame is he won uh, several nights at uh, Showtime at the Apollo, the oh. amateur night, back in the late 60s when he and my mom lived in New York for a while. Uh, That's but pretty my cool. Mom, yeah, but my mom was just um, always kind of pragmatic in her approach. My mom was actually a school bus driver and a custodian at the schools that I went to. Uh, but uh, like she, she, she doesn't have an outward 
um, creative expression, but she's one of the most talented comedians I have ever come to know in my life. She's, she, she's a brilliant comic. Oh, I love that. So lots of humor in your house growing up then and singing, I'm sure. Oh, yes. <laughs> Did you grow up in a big family or were you an only child? My immediate family was um, my three brothers and sisters. One of them passed away. Um, but uh, by the time I kind of came to uh, Sapiens, uh, it was my older brother and my older sister. I was the youngest, but we had a very large extended family. Like we grew up in the same village where my ancestors were enslaved. So uh-huh. they were generations and generations of connections and cousins as siblings um, that really made for a very big and uh, welcoming and uh, loving family environment. How did living in the same place where your family, you know, your ancestors were enslaved, how did that affect you growing up or, or did it, or, you know, is it now something that's more apparent? It's, it's definitely something that like was endowed later on in life. Like, you know, as I became an adult and um, started researching and, you know, really diving into my storytelling and my fine art practices that, you know, I realized the tremendous significance and, you know, the kind of unique parameters of that upbringing. Um, you know, I think that there was something probably um, like unconscious, like, you know, I think there were just like subtleties of being connected to the land, and, you know, running around barefoot on the same roads where, you know, generations and generations before have trod. Um, so it was, it, you know, there, there was something there that, you know, probably couldn't be easily measured and probably even more difficult to articulate. You know, it's just like an incredible anchoring, which I feel is probably true of anyone's home, but there was something that felt even uh, more rooted and, and, and stable in that space. And I think that was probably the environmental connection to that history did you leave that area for college or did you stay there and you you majored in psychology correct yeah i went and i studied um in college not very far i think 80 miles uh north and west of where i grew up wasn't very far um but um i left in 1994 after i Graduated high school and went to college in Florence, South Carolina at Francis Marion University. And, you know, did my four and a half years there. I was on that extended program and, uh, and then came back to the region and lived and worked in Myrtle Beach for uh, a year and a half and then moved to Washington, D.C. in uh, 2000. What was it like? I grew up going down to Myrtle Beach. Uh, we used to drive the family truckster from New Jersey down there for uh, for holidays so um, or summer vacation. So what was it like working in Myrtle Beach? Because it is such a area driven by, you know, especially back then, tourism and, you know, the summer months. And so were there any kind of lessons learned or takeaways or was it just, you know, like you said, like a, a job, you know, in high school and after college? Yeah, it was, yeah, it, it certainly was terrible <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, but it was a lot of fun being a teenager and, and working in Myrtle Beach and like going up and down the boulevard. And, you know, it's just like you, you were 
aimless, you were directionless, like you were free of any obligation and pressure to do anything other than hang out. Um, and it was relatively safe too. And that's something I definitely have to recognize that there was a, um, there was a, an element of safety there to a certain degree, you know, being in the South and, and just growing up and, you know, having cousins who are older than you are all congregating in the same space. Um, so, it was, you know, it was, it was certainly fun. I, I enjoyed it. Um, you know, I, I, I went back there after college to open up the Boys and Girls Club there. So my perspective was a little bit different um, the second time around, trying to be a professional in the context of that, um, that space. And, you know, yeah, it was about a year before I realized that um, my aspirations might be um, a little more than what Myrtle Beat to provide. And, you know, decided that I had to seek, um, you know, broader, brighter opportunities outside of uh, the South. Tell us about opening up the Boys and Girls Club. How did that come about? It was my first job out of college. You know, I think I graduated in that December and, um, you know, I didn't have a lot of direction. Like my degree was in psychology and I had a business minor. Um you know, I wasn't really bent on anything other than going to grad school. Um, and I wanted to be an industrial and organizational psychologist, purely um, based on the fact that they were the most highly paid um, psychologists and psychotherapists and people who worked in that industry. And, you know, I was just young and just like, oh, I'm going to make a million dollars. I'm going to be rich. And I had no real, like, meaningful desire around like you know my career um at all at that point and um yeah and the boys and girls club was actually just opening that january so i slid into that job very easily and um you know it was amazing because like those types of services really did not exist in the south to that extent like you know we didn't have the Y's and the boys and girls clubs or other um you know kind of programs that really supported kids is like you know you came home by yourself you didn't you know we weren't latchkey kids because back then no one locked the doors anyway so you didn't need a key and you know you kind of self-supervised or you were supervised by the village you lived in until your parents came home from work and you just knew what was expected of you it was a very adult thing um to impose on children so there, there wasn't a lot a need for that and um, it was really good to be a part of that conversation and to help like communities that were largely underserved to you know find ways to engage their kids and you know you know expose them to opportunities and ideas and concepts that they weren't getting in school and certainly that I wasn't getting when I was a child so I, that, was, that was really exciting to be a part of, um, you know, something new. And I think it kind of set a tone for the rest of my career because, like, every job that I worked since then has always been stepping into something new and helping it to grow. Um, so, yeah, that was a real good um, benefit and experience to come out of that first job. Right. And what made you move to D.C.? In addition to working at Boys and Girls Club, I was actually um, – starting like my first kind of therapeutic practices. I was 
an applied behavioral analysis uh, therapist, um, an ABA therapist working with children on the autism spectrum. So I did a lot of that in the daytime, like helping uh, these kids who are on the spectrum, uh, focus mainly mainstreaming them into like the mainstream classroom environment. And, um, you know, I, I was thinking that I was going to grow with the Boys and Girls Club and um, I was really excited to move into Atlanta. And I went down to Atlanta, got an interview um, at a Boys and Girls Club. It felt very promising, was going to go back for a second interview. But I decided before I moved from Myrtle Beach that I was going to go visit some friends of mine who I'd worked with and some colleagues at the school, but who had moved to Washington, D.C. I said, well, I'm going to visit you before I move all the way to Atlanta. And... I tell you, my first time in Washington, D.C. was just transformative. It's like I never felt so home in a place that was not my home than uh, D.C. And, um, you know, I think that first weekend I came here was like uh, President's Day weekend. And um, by June 15th, I had a new job and a new apartment in, in D.C. I, you know, I dropped all things Atlanta and um, hauled everything up to the District of Columbia. It felt like such a gateway and, you know, it was very affirming, you know, to see um, people who look like me, um, you know, in places and positions of power and, um, you know, who are actually doing like these things that I thought were very aspirational. And, you know, by this time I was really coming to terms with my sexual identity um, and my sexuality. Um, and I just saw Washington, D.C. being such a um, warm and receptive place for, um, you know, that part of my being. That's awesome. And what was your first job there? What did, what did you do? So I came here as a uh, psychotherapist. Um, you know, so some of the work that I had been doing um, with autism spectrum uh, children and uh, some of the work, the social work that I was doing at the Boys and Girls Club came together perfectly to work in this dual diagnosis program, you know, working with kids uh, who were, uh, who had diagnoses on two axes um, and uh, started working in home-based therapy, working with mental health and substance abuse and then uh, picked up working uh, with sex offenders as well, too. What was it that you liked about this role, and how long did you stay in it? Um, you know, there was something incredibly powerful and I think cathartic with working in a psychotherapeutic environment, like watching people and aiding people to come to terms with, you know, these traumas that have been a part of their lives and maybe their, their parents' lives and their sibling lives. I mean, it was real restorative um, to see that process happen. Um, and it was incredibly rewarding to see yourself a part of that process, you know, to help people to help themselves, you know, and that's, that's always thought about my, my therapeutic practice is like, you know, if I can just 
create a, an opportunity for people to access their own well-being through mental health, um, then that is my job. It's not to, you know, make people better. It's not to fix broken people. It's, you know, then that's where I really learned the, the practice of empathy. Um, and, um, you know, it's also a place where, you know, I think one of the few moments in, in, in life in general, and I think it sometimes it's very, like, racist structure that can be the United States. It was like one of the few times where my identity as a black man actually worked in my favor because unfortunately in the space of mental health, the vast majority of uh, those who are in need in certain systems are black men, are people who look like me. And, um, you know, it really made for, you know, me and my practice to expand and, you know, and work. Um, you know, because so it was really at the beginning of understanding of how identity has a direct correlation to, you know, the facilitation of therapeutic practices. You know, I think that, you know, up until that point, no one cared, no one even thought about it, you know, and, you know, it was at that point where we saw that when um, people saw themselves reflected in their own therapeutic practice, um, it gave them, I think, a greater motivation to, you know, continue the work and gave them more faith in the work because they, they felt like there was a familiarity to it, that there was an understanding that this person sitting across from me who is claiming to want to help me um, might actually understand where I am from a, just from a very basic human perspective. No, that's so true. I mean, a lot of it is feeling comfortable, right? And having, you know, being able to see yourself in someone else. So that's so powerful. Did you continue that for a while? Um, is this something, you know, trying to get to where you switched over? Because you also, um, you know, started doing performance art as well, correct? Yeah. Um, and the two are really not that separated. Um, you know, I did that for four years. And, um, you know, it really was, it became a motivation and kind of informed um, the, the next evolution um, in my professional and personal life. Because, you know, like I said, I really enjoyed doing that work. Um, and, you know, even though I saw the tremendous value in the one-to-one -one equation, like, you know, where, you know, you spend time working with the individual to help them get to their point, I started to feel a greater tug towards a um, broader practice of healing and um, thought of the process of collective healing um, and just was figuring out like a thinking about ways that I can contribute to that. And that's where my storytelling, storytelling practice, which evolved to my um, performance practice and involved to my um, applied art practice, like this concept of like pulling that, that, kind of that continued idea and that through line, that meta narrative of like the process of healing and the practice of healing and going from a, an individualized uh, modality to a collective modality. Because I realized that when working with the populations that I was working with at the practice that, you know, we all are in desperate need of healing. We all are in desperate need of, you know, a fearless self-evaluation 
we all are in need of the structure to be able to empathize and understand the human condition as it relates to all of us and also what it means to bring about a personal infrastructure of accountability. And that's, that's, that's the foundation in which like all of my creative practices are built on. And why did you, what drew you to performance art versus other mediums? My first entry into like a creative um, expression, you know, in the context of like how we think about creative and artists operate. And I'm not talking about the years and years of like storytelling and griot practices that were cultural, but, um, you know, like when I stepped on the stage for the first time, I think in 2005 as a storyteller and, um, you know, directly engaging with audience, um, it, you know, it, it was very natural. You know, and um, as I was thinking about what the evolution was, you know, it's like these experiences, like, you know, they live within a certain construct, like, you know, there's an agreement, like you, you buy a ticket, you come into a theater, you get your seat, and there's an expectation, there's a contract between whoever the subject is on stage and the audience. And I wanted to break away from that. Like, you know, I didn't want to be, you know, you know, committed to having to entertain people. I, I wanted to push myself and my practice and my audience into, um, you know, deeper planes and explorations of like human consciousness and the self. And uh, performance art was something that I found that really worked for me. Um, like, you know, the poetry, the abstraction, the choreography, the use of spoken word or non-use of spoken word. It was kind of one of those things where, you know, there, there are no rules, you know, there's no, there's, there's no wrong, but there certainly is a right. Um, and um, I, I just, I, I, it was, you know, <clears throat> I can't say that it was methodical or it was planned. It's like sometimes you just have to let go of the wheel and uh, see which way it drifts. And um, that's what happened. Like my drift took me like smack dab into this uh, space of performance space work. Very cool. And where did you perform? And if you had to explain it to someone who's never seen it, how would you, how would you describe, you know, your art, your, your, your practice and what you put on? Um, yes, I have to do that quite often because people don't understand the distinguish. Uh, I guess, like, you know, they're, they're like the, the normative um, or the expectations around performance art is it's, it's done within the context of um, uh, fine art and art institutions as opposed to like traditional theater. Um, <clears throat> but what, 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 how I try to explain it to people is like it's an art practice where the primary uh, materi- material of my work is my own body and my own consciousness. And I use those two materials along with the material of time to, um, you know, communicate or create an environment that audiences can step into and um, share some of that experience through their own context and point of view. Uh, you, you don't need to see or feel my experience in it. What you do have to do is surrender to your own feeling and your own experience in this. Um, you know, so it becomes uh, less of a spectacle and more of like a participatory work. Um, because I feel like that's like the, at least from my um, 
practice a performance is like my, my biggest measure of success is like the ability of the audience to access that and come into their own work at the same time. I want to see the audience working as hard as I am, not harder than I am and not any less hard than I'm working, but just as hard because there's a communion in that that um, I think is incredibly powerful and helps to take this ephemeral practice and give it longevity and give it endurance because that experience will stay with you um, in perpetuity. Like you will always remember how you felt in that moment and how that piece of that work um, made you feel and react. Um, so it's, it's tapping into a different type of memory which isn't always conscious or always something that you can articulate. Um, but to answer your question as to where I was performing, um, my first, you know, first performance art piece was done at the Emerge Art Fair, which is an art fair that was put on in D.C. I think it started in 2011 or 2012, and it was exclusively focused on emerging artists, um, you know, artists who just, you know, it wasn't like like a lot of art fairs that use the gallery model, it was just literally art fairs that were just like, these are people who are, um, you know, making new conversations in the fine art world and you should pay attention to them. And that was the first, you know, performance art piece that I did. And um, I'll tell you, it was really interesting because, you know, not only was I learning, but my audience had to learn. It was so disruptive to the people who had, become accustomed to me doing like traditional storytelling, like first person um, spoken word with a clear narrative arc that's accessible to go to this very abstract space where, you know, you kind of get slammed and, and you are left with the feeling you're left. You, you, there's no closure. There's just like, you just came in and you just dumped a whole bunch of shit on us and then left us to deal with it, which I was totally okay with. Um, and it's still a part <laughs> of my practice, but people were disrupted by that. That's interesting. Um, and <laughs> where did you find inspiration for all this or who are your greatest inspirations? You know, or, you know, I know you said you pulled from a lot of, you know, the work you're doing and your background. Was there anything else that, you know, continue to fuel you but it's always been this need for me to engage in this restorative history practice this idea that i always felt that there was a lot of untruths lies you know deception all these things that were a part of like the history as as we were taught it um, and, you know, and I feel like a part of that is also a part of like my own particular connection with history because, you know, I, I realized at a very young age that I had a way of knowing things without knowing how I knew them, but I was very certain that I knew that this was the, the truth of the situation. And sometimes those things were very individual, you know, they were very much connected to certain personalities in my life. Um, and then sometimes they were much broader. So I feel like that was the, kind of the biggest aspiration is to seek uh, restorative historical truth, um, you know, be that in an uh, individual one-on-one -on -one psychotherapeutic practice, you know, where I'm helping people to go back in these moments and, you know, collect 
accept the truth um, as they understand it and then begin to deal with it. And then, you know, with me growing up, you know, being a little uh, sissy boy growing up in the rural South, um, I had to do that. And that became a, a, a restorative practice for me. It was, I think, how I took my childish wounds and transformed them into um, adult strengths and, um, you know, in, in using that kind of like those, those history that those, 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 those particular impacts um, in turning that scarring and that scarring tissue into a, a, a muscle um, that I can then use for, you know, fueling a, a future narrative and not just being burdened by, you know, this, this wound that I would just not be able to heal. And again, like, you know, and I'm still learning how to articulate this and how to incorporate this into my practice and share this with others. But whatever, whatever amount of that was palatable for me psychologically back then was enough to keep me motivated to always be looking for this restorative history. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like a group of um, like artists or art practice or movement um, because I, I don't have any formalized education in, in, in art. Um, but definitely my understanding of like my work and my practice, I, I see now the parallels with other movements and other artistic practices that have um, preceded me. And so how did you get involved with Eaton? Was it, you know, is it something that came to you or did you meet Catherine Lowe? Um, how did you decide to get involved? Um, it actually, it came to me. It was really interesting. Like, you know, I had just wrapped up this like endurance performance piece. It was called Sheldon for DC. And um, it was definitely um, the most local focused work I had ever done in my practice. It was all about what was happening in our city, you know, greenwashing, displacement, um, and all of these other things like where, you know, artists and art found itself at the center of this massive like social displacement practice known as real estate development. Um, and, you know, and something that I believe was like holistically contrary to the idea and the practices of art, like, like art and artists want to create more space. We want to create community, not, you know, um, diminish community. And then we found ourselves like kind of stuck out there. And um, it really motivated this piece that lasted for, I think, three months. Um, and I just wrapped this up and a friend of mine reached out and asked me if I'd be interested and uh, working for this hotel brand. And I was like, uh, hell no. I was like, why, why? You know, when, you know, some of the biggest offenders are hotel developers and things like that. And, um, but like the person who brought it to me was always, um, you know, like she was someone that I trusted quite a bit and uh, would confide in. And, I, I, and she had a criticality to her approach where I was like, well, if you think this is something I should be interested in, I'll at least, you know, like pay attention, I'll tune in. And, 
And, you know, and I did, and it wasn't a lot about eating at the time. This was in um, June, I think it was like mid-June, late June of 2017. And, um, you know, as I got formally introduced to the, the partners and the people, eventually, um, you know, Kat, Catherine Lowe got involved in, in that process. This is when I first, first witnessed to um, Kat's intuition and her genius um, because she, during my process, I was supposed to be interviewed by the then general manager and uh, a vice president. And Kat said, no, I want to interview him first. And, and um, so she and I, so she was my, my first exposure to like what he was. And we did a FaceTime meeting and I tell you, it was like, it was love at first date. Like I absolutely, absolutely fell in love with her, the concept, um, her dogs barking in the back. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I felt like it was mutual. Like we had a lot of respect. Like I didn't know very much of her, um, you know, going into it and a little bit that, you know, I tried to research about the brand, like there was nothing. Um, but like the conversations that we had, like the tone, the language, um, you know, the aspirations that she put on this brand. I was like, there's no way, there's no way I would not, you know, want to work with something like this. And I wasn't looking for a job, you know, at that point, it's been two and a half years since I was living as an artist full time, you know, after um, not being at my previous job anymore. And I was financially settled. You know, I had that point had had um, my first three shows um, in Smithsonian, and there was just a lot. I just scored my first residency here in DC. And like there was no reason for me whatsoever, and it was, it was, it was tough. It was a tough decision to make. Um, but like you know, at the same time, I always felt like this job was an extension of my, my, my practice as an artist because there was so much that was going to go into this that required that kind of work. And um, yeah, I started working in I think uh, July of 2017, and the rest is history. That's amazing. Wait, your work was also in the Smithsonian. Can you talk about like what that meant as an artist to have, you know, have your work featured there? You know, it's so surreal. You know, at, at this point, it is so surreal to think that, you know, I had the opportunity to share my work, you know, and it was, I mean, it was, it was surreal for many different reasons. First of all, like performance art in the institution, you know, that relationship has always been, you know, tenuous, if at all existed, like, you know, it's a really hard thing for the institution to think about putting, you know, their hands around a very ephemeral practice known as performance. How does it fit within the gallery and the institution? Not just physically, but like intellectually, like, you know, what, what, what is its place in this story? And, you know, the National Portrait Gallery um, was, you know, the first 
time that it was brought in through a curatorial perspective. Like I did have the, um, you know, pleasure of working with the uh, Smithsonian Museum of African Art, um, but it was brought in through education. Um, but when I had the opportunity to be curated into this new series called Identify, which focused on the National Portrait Gallery's collection being largely devoid of, um, you know, histories that weren't just white men, you know, women's history, indigenous histories, um, you know, African-American histories, like through the, through the lens of portraiture, like those, those populations did not have the, or weren't afforded the luxury of portraiture. And the museum made a, a, a very ingenious commitment to trying to restore that in the best way that they knew how and performance was like the, the perfect way to bring that in. So it, it was just surreal for the fact of like, you know, my practice, you know, definitely I have to acknowledge the fact that as an artist who did not um, get formally trained, at an arts education institution um, and an artist whose practice was still relatively young. Um, you know, I think I had done my first, you know, I created my first fine art piece back in 2012. And in 2016, I'm having my first museum experience. So it was, um, you know, it was very powerful, you know, and um, it is, you know, it was it was the exact kind of like jet fuel that I needed to like maintain my practice and commit to it. Um, but you know, like I was saying, like you know, it wasn't. You know, Eden didn't come at a time down. Eden came a little bit earlier, like when things were struggling after like not working a full time job anymore. It would have been a question. I would have been happy to jump jump into it, but you know, I felt like the timing was perfect because you know, because when I came to it. Um, my expectations for it and it for me were totally informed by, you know, the, the practice in the work itself. It wasn't about um, a paycheck. So what was your role at Eaton or, how, you know, what were you brought in to do? So I was brought in as the director of culture here at Eaton, D.C. Um, and Eaton, D.C. was the, um, it's the, it's the first of, um, you know, our developments, but our Hong Kong property came in like right after us. Um, but um, yeah, I was brought in to help build the community for this space. Um, you know, I, I enjoy a very loving and affirming relationship with uh, DC. And, um, you know, my job was to, um, going to be a, you know, a custodian of sorts to um, like building a place, um, not just physically, but like socially where the artists and the activists and, you know, all the people who love and believe in DC could find themselves a place here. And, um, you know, and I, and I did that through curatorial practice, through the arts, through programming and partnership. But, you know, I, I tell, you know, people when they ask, like, what does a director of culture do? Um, you know, it's like, I feel like my primary job was to um, make sure that Catherine's vision um, for Eden 
is executed to the fullest on the property. And so how did you go about this? How did you begin? And what have you, and what have maybe been some highlights of what you've done? Um, yeah, you know, kind of going back to that uh, building that Boys and Girls Club back then, it's like, like I said, I had already enjoyed a relationship with this city and um, earned the respect of its residents, um, you know, new, old, young. Um, and uh, I wanted, I guess, you know, the, you know, the first functional thing is just like explaining to people like what this concept was because it, it was it was definitely novel um you know it was not easy to understand it wasn't easy to articulate as well too um you know it's funny like when we got our first bit of press you know a lot of people who we wanted to be aligned with actually like shitted on us <laughs> it was like what in the hell is that but um you know i think as Eden, you know, allow it, allowed itself to, um, you know, be a space for the community to come in and find like, the usefulness of it um, and the purpose of it. It, it, it grew in strength and um, it grew in community. Um, and so one of the things like coming into a space like this, you know, taking the art program per se, which art programs traditionally in hotel work a lot differently. You know, the hotel, the property pays the art consultant to, you know, bring in a whole bunch of art. And, you know, I think the primary goal of that is aesthetic. But, like, you know, we're a social justice um, brand and that's a part of our vision. Then our artwork program has to honor that. And it also has to honor that it has to have that conversation simultaneously, globally and locally. And so like turning to DC based artists to help to build the fabric of this place and to think of this place as a canvas and come and use it. And, you know, I think that was the first thing is like using those opportunities to build community through the curatorial practice. It's like, no, this is a space where you can come in. And then being very upfront about our conversation, like, you know, I've never, you know, I, I, I never brought in this conversation, which artists oftentimes hear that we're going to give you exposure. So in exchange for this exposure, we're going to devalue your work and your practice. You know, so like framing that as a very honest conversation, like meeting people, you know, and meeting people in their practice where they, you know, where they are, where their market is, and like saying, like, no, we're invested in you and your work because we want your work, we want your conversation, we want your voice in the space, and we don't put conditions on that. No one knew how to use a social justice hospitality brand. <laughs> so, like, we had to, um, we had to prop that up for everyone, and we had to let people know how they can be used, and you know, the, the, the sharing of space here, um, which is very important and very real, um, really helped to like build this community um, physically and psychologically. What do you think this brand means? Or do you think it means more now than ever with everything that's happening? Um, do you think the brand means more or could mean more or, you know, it's just what was needed? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, Kat often talks about like how, you know, 
we came up to be our first two hotels were open in Hong Kong and DC. And you know how those places then later became like the global epicenter of conversations of uprising in the need for change and the push forward for social justice. Um, you know, you couldn't have opened it like to more important places um, globally right now. And yeah, I do think that the brand and its and its purpose is even more important now and it grows even more important every day. Um, you know, as we're on the cusp of a, of a very major shift, like, you know, I think, you know, the turmoil that we're feeling right now is, you know, very indicative of like major change coming, coming through. And I think the better understanding, I think that, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter movement and the preservation of Black lives and the protection of Black lives right now is such a global conversation that I could not have imagined or predicted, you know, four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. Like, not to this degree, you know, right. where it has become, you know, such commonplace and it has become so compelling for everyone to come to an understanding with that. And yeah, you know, of course, when you make those kinds of moves, you you ruffle feathers. Like, you know, when you're digging up, you know, all that kind of deep-rooted um, and toxic challenges, like those things rise to the top, you know. But that is the first process and the, and the, and the, and the global process of healing is like rucking up the dirt of it. So, like, you know, a place like this is just so incredibly pitiful, pivotal to that. Um, I, you know, it's, it's been a challenge for us because, you know, part of the value of this place and the attraction of it is like the creation of a physical space where people can actually convene, you know, where those collisions can actually happen, you know, with these people who come from, you know, disparate movements, you know, environmentalism, race, gender, ability, um, you know, sexuality, all these other movements. But then, you know, one thing we're thinking about is like if corralling those causes could uh, provide for a deeper intersectional approach to everything, um, then we, you know, then we actually are, are, are we're, we're actually making some real change because like when we realize that our problems are our problems, meaning that you know, the problem of race is very real in our environmental struggles. You know, the problem of gender is very real and, you know, in our struggle around hypercapitalism and, you know, and the need to create a space where everyone has a place to live and everyone has food to eat, you know, basic human necessities. You know, when we have all those conversations happening, it's, it's, it's a natural, you know, mix that we feel could actually be a very potent um, response to what's happening in the world. And we start to de-silo ourselves and our movements. But now we're in a space now where that physical, you know, that, that, that collective actually can't happen physically. So as a brand now, we're, we're, we're working hard to ensure that what we were able to create and, you know, like the year, year and a half we were able to operate before COVID hit, that we can replicate that or scale that to the digital um, sphere um, as we figure out what we need to do to maintain our safety before we can get back together 
But like, you know, what we realized is like now is not a time to stop working. Now is a time when we work more and we have to be innovative and nuanced in our approach to what our work looks like now. And that's something that Eden is um, really starting to get a handle of um, until we can all get back together and then continue to move this movement forward, forward in other ways. It must be so frustrating because there's so much you want to do, um, but you can't because you have to keep everyone safe. So have you, have you all, not to use the word of the 2020, but have you pivoted to more online community to connecting people that way? Or are you just waiting until the hotel can reopen? Um, oh no. Yeah. We, we, we've been pivoting and then pivoting and then pivoting. Um, you know, <laughs> I like I pivot every day just again. I'm like, wait, one more time. It's like, it's like one, more, one more pivot. Um, but I, I, I think that one thing that we've definitely committed to as a brand is like, you know, like we don't ever use the terminology post COVID. Like we think that we should prepare ourselves for COVID's presence in our future for quite some time. Um, and that has given us a clear path to like what we're going to be and how we're going to shape and what our quote unquote pivot is going to look like. We've also been able to use our building in a very limited way. Like we, we gave space to um, this genius high schoolers who were, who excuse me, who were 3D print, printing uh, PPE. Um, and then we used our space for a mutual aid program that was hyper-locally focused. We worked hard to take care of our own, you know, making sure that our employees who were furloughed, like, didn't have, you know, didn't feel the pangs of food insecurity and, you know, trying to participate in the economic stability of the society in every way that we can. And how are you handling reopening? This marks us uh, two months in. Um, you know, it's slow, obviously. Um, you know, like the District of Columbia in particular has been very rigorous about, you know, its um, travel restrictions and its quarantine restrictions. And, you know, and it's, it's it's proven to help to keep us like relatively safe and um, you know, but you know, there are needs that are, that have to be met. And, you know, we had to come up with all new protocols on like safety, you know, in our public space, um, you know, safety in the guest rooms themselves. You know, it's, it's good to see like we, we, we had the pleasure of like hosting a lot of people during the 57th March on Washington and the commitment march put on by National Action Network and Martin Luther King III. And it was just heartwarming to see how people were using the space, um, you know, and that people felt comfortable enough to, to be with us. And that we, 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 we contributed and, and helped to keep people safe while they were here. And I think people really felt that and, um, you know, and they embraced that. And it was, you know, it was just a little slice of like what Eden used to be. And you were able to see a little bit of that transpire over the weekend. And it was beautiful because you saw it was needed, you know. And, you know, and again, it's like it's that that collective healing mm -hmm. that I talk about in my practice that, you know, we were all able to witness. Yeah, that's for sure. And wh where do you see eaten headed and you know what do you hope to do to achieve to you know get done in the next call it year six months to a year there obviously there's some very immediate needs 
you know, like there's a lot of change that has to be facilitated in this country. Um, and a lot of change that needs to be facilitated in this world. And, you know, the thing is that Eden has always been smart enough to realize it's not our job to do that work. It's our job to ensure that that work could be facilitated in a space that is safe, cooperative, inclusive, impactfully supportive. And if we can be, you know, a part of those conversations in any way helpful, if we can contribute to, you know, the need to greater understand and embrace the how essential it is to protect Black lives, to protect trans lives, to protect the environment, to protect the uh, indigenous peoples and lands, to protect freedom, you know, to protect, you know, democracy. And I mean, I, I think that that is, you know, the most important focus that we can have right now. I want, I, we need to get back to business. We need to open up, you know, um, you know, those things aren't, aren't focuses, those aren't priorities because they quite frankly just aren't real. Like, you know, until we address these problems that we are faced with now, then none of it, it's all ephemeral. None of it, none of it will last. Like if we're going to build an enduring change and if we're going to be a part of a society and a legacy that is going to leave behind to generations, a functional world, there's some critical things that we have to do first right now. We, we just want to contribute. We want to be a part of, we want to help to facilitate those conversations and then ultimately those actions. How has this affected your own, you know, your own work, your own artistry? And are you still doing some of that on the side um, with Eaton? Um, you know, how has this affected your process and your th- you know, and what you want to do there as well. You know, with my practice, I, you know, just had, you know, the pleasure and honor of um, being a part of um, a very historic moment, being the first ever performance-based artist to be included in the Outwin Boucher National Portraiture Prize at the Portrait Gallery. And, um, you know, it's a three-year show um, which includes a uh, performance in a um, 12-hour and 21-minute film that I made. And it was, you know, traveling for three years, um, you know, and unfortunately, you know, the exhibition at the Portrait Gallery, you know, was closed when the institution shut down. And But it's opening up in uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, I think, until early spring next year. Then it's going to be in St. Louis. And honestly, like before everything kind of went to shit with COVID, I had kind of committed my practice to being focused on that. So um, it wasn't too disruptive to that. Like, you know, knock on wood, you know, I didn't lose anything else like besides like a few talks but um what it what it did you know what it did do for me is it allowed me the opportunity to kind of reflect um and refocus on my 
my work. Um, I'm really looking at, you know, getting back into the studio and focusing on um, leisure, which is very interesting, working in the context of a hospitality brand, like exploring leisure in my practice. Um, but uh, it's certainly what's calling me. And, um, you know, I, 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 you know, I spent a lot of time down in South Carolina, um, five months down there, just, you know, collecting some artifacts, a lot of um, heirloom tools, you know, one, you know, one beautiful water pump from the uh, 19th century that belonged to my great, 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 great grandfather. Um, and just been thinking about purpose, labor, leisure the context of my work and interesting and you know just interested in like what's going to come out of this so i didn't that's something i just don't know but like the the discovery the process of discovery has been uh, very exciting for me i can feel like i could talk to you for hours but in the sake of time um <laughs> we will wrap this up um and we always end um our podcast with the question um that is posed in our title, what I've learned. So what has been your greatest lesson learned um, or even your greatest piece of, a piece of advice that has stuck with you? I, I would say that the thing that um, probably is the most valuable part of my, my understanding of self and practice and like, you know, allowing myself the ability to do the work that I do was the, I mean, the, the invaluable practice of self-investment. Um, I, I just can't overstate how important it was for me to come to understand, you know, myself and my fullness. And I know that sounds like, you know, such an ego-driven concept. Um, I don't think but, so. But, like, you know, I mean, there's a real... I mean, there's a real threat to not believing in yourself or investing in yourself in any meaningful way, um, because the world is the world is inherently unfriendly, and um, you know the less of that self value, that self worth, that self investment you make, you make, the more unfriendly the world becomes. So I just learned to make. You know, as a part of making myself and my environment um, a friendlier, happier place to be, I I invest in myself first. So when I come into these environments, I, I bring I bring that perspective that um, you know basically it's the, the kind of thing that holds holds your back up, holds your your your, your head up, you know, without you know, you know, without drowning, you know, you do, you do need some steel in your back to do this kind of work. And if you're going to try to change the world in some way, you, you're definitely going to need that. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end. Thank you so much for being here. Um, it was such a pleasure. love catching up with you and such an inspiration. So thank you for taking this time today. Yeah, thank you all. Thank you so much for all the support. Um, and yeah, I look forward to continuing the conversation with you all. Loving what you're doing. 
Thanks for listening to Hospitality Design's What I've Learned. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find full episodes and transcripts at hospitalitydesign.com.